Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Good morning, everybody. It's good to hear your voices. And uh, to all of you watching from home online, welcome, welcome. Really glad that you've chosen to join us. Uh, if you're here and uh, would just want to fire off an email or a text or anything else, let us know if you've got prayer requests or anything like that. If you're online, uh, you can leave that note in the uh, whatever platform you're watching on in those comments. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a Bible this morning, we're going to continue in the book of Matthew chapter 5. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Picked that back up last week. And um, we're going to do a very, very brief summary of last week and then move forward here. Uh, this idea that Jesus is manifesting the kingdom uh, in, at the end of chapter 4. And then he teaches about the kingdom. So this kingdom manifesto is the theme that we will do. And you have never encountered a block of teaching um, like, like is there in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the most profound thing uh, that you could read. And I just, I am so excited about how things are going uh, to unfold for us over the next several weeks as we continue to study. The key thought uh, from last, I meant to say this before I got rolling here. Uh, if you're a user of the Bible app, you can uh, open up that app and find our live event, track along scriptures and sermon notes and that kind of thing. So I get check that box now. Uh, the key thought from last week is the key thought uh, that will carry us this week as well. And I want to set it before you and then we'll read the text together. And that is to deal with anger, you pursue righteousness. That's to say it positively. There are other ways that people try to deal with anger, but I'm offering to you and Jesus is going to tell us today, teach us today that to deal with anger, you pursue righteousness. He ties those two things together. We're going to start in verse 20 of chapter five and then work our way down to verse 26. These seven verses. Here we go. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of the heavens. For you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders uh, will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift before the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So um, we are wrestling here with anger and Jesus moves from um, his statement, his incredibly important statement about righteousness to anger. And he does so because he's really smart. You think about all the chaos that happened this week and you think about all the chaos that has happened in the history of the world and it traces back to anger. Anger is primary. It, it, it has a, the primary place of releasing evil into this world. And that's why Jesus starts there. So we have our two friends back from last week. Did anybody encounter these kind, not necessarily these faces, but these kinds of faces this week? Anybody encounter that? You came around the corner and this is what you saw. And you're like, oh, goodness. Um, this is anger. And we sourced anger um, from the stories of the scriptures and um, the expressions of it. We sourced it in three particular places. One was the will that gets thwarted. You want something 
And then something or someone stands in your way and you see it in toddlers and you see it in teenagers and you see it in adults. Um, The thwarted will, it is a source of anger. You are not getting what you want. That is a source of anger. The second um, uh, uh, piece or source of anger we talked about was unmet expectations. I am expecting something from you or expecting something from a particular situation and that expectation goes unmet. It is uniquely toxic uh, when that expectation is unexpressed first, but nonetheless, it goes unmet and that uh, incites in me anger. And the third one was the wounded ego. Long ago, we put aside sticks and stones or break our bones. We know that it hurts. And so the wounded ego uh, is a place where um, somebody says something about me or does something to me that makes me feel something different than I want to feel. Therefore, the wounded ego. And typically, one of those three is the doorway, and then the other two kind of come along so that the three all get involved together and they poison our soul. They, they if you will, put a bug in our operating system, and therefore, our whole lives kind of get crazy. Um, anger, we said last week, is not, um, it, it grows in strength, which is kind of the first part of the sermon today. Um, but uh, anger is not wrong in and of itself. It's like that check engine light on the dashboard of your car. It, it, um, it becomes a real problem, not when it flares up, but when we leave it un, um, unattended to. And then, now the way the Bible says we to uh, attend to that is to get to the source so that we can set it to the side. Some of us uh, embrace anger. And when we embrace anger, the consequence is that it will make us liable to judgment, putting us in the same classification as the murderer. That's what he says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. We, we are in the same category as the murderer at that point. And so if you think that Jesus is laying down new law for us, giving us new rules to follow. Here's what I want to say to you. Let's just be clear. You can go through your entire life and not murder anyone and still not be righteous because you can carry hatred or bitterness or any number of other things in your heart that will poison the world around you. It's not only not murdering. It is something much deeper than that. And that's what Jesus is after uh, is after here. Anger poisons the world around us and us while we are in it. We put ourselves in danger of becoming an angry person. After it is embraced, it becomes ingrained and then it becomes needed and it bubbles right there below the surface and we go looking for reasons to be angry. And our desire for the harm of others is the complete opposite of the kingdom. And when we um, carry anger, that red hot anger at people. It strikes at their need for acceptance. And in that moment right there, we have um, aligned ourselves with something far, far different than the kingdom of the heavens that Jesus offers us. Now, I promised last week that we would put a pause and a parenthesis here, and I want to do this right here, this brief excursus, because some people come back and say, what about righteous anger? And the answer is, is there such, well, excuse me, the question, is there such a thing as righteous anger? And the answer is yes, that we get riled uh, the way that God gets riled about the things that God gets riled about. That, that's righteous anger is that he sets the pace for us. Jesus is not talking about that here. I'll say that again in a second. He's not talking about that here. But yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger. When you survey the Bible... And the stories that unfold in the Bible, there's four kind of big things, and I'll just point out to them. Number one, uh, before, excuse me, before we even get there, can we, can we be clear on the description of God, though? The Lord, gracious, compassionate, and then it says, slow to anger. 
slow to anger. Is anybody in here grateful that God is slow to anger? Oh, put, put me top of that list right there. He is slow to anger. So we need to follow his pacing on this. With me? Not only the topics, but also the pacing. So slow to anger. So these, these four things. Number one, when a gift becomes a God to us, little g, God. Most often I will say I've seen this and certainly in uh, the ways that the Bible talks about it, you see it in regards to possessions. The things that God entrusts us with become the thing that have our allegiance and uh, our attention and our affection and the actions that follow. So when a gift becomes a God, instead of being stewards of that gift, instead of being managers of that gift, we pursue that gift as if it is worthy of our utmost allegiance. Secondly, when a God, little g, becomes my savior, when I pursue another God to save me, and you see this all throughout the Old Testament in particular, certainly there are examples in the New Testament, but you see it um, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in, in the book of First and Second Kings, where the kings um, who were ruling Israel and Judah and uh, should have been doing things that they uh, were right before God, they would go off and they would offer sacrifices to this other God, or they would make a political alliance with this other king, this kind of thing. Listen to me. Um, one of the places where you see God's ire raised, where you see his anger incited is when we treat political, with first Kings and second Kings, when the people of God treat political leaders as messiahs. I didn't know if that had any relevance to our week. A friend of mine texted me this week. He goes, hey, are you going to talk about what's going on? I said, no, I'm going to talk about anger. <laughs> Listen, when, um, when I run to another God for what I think that I need, we, we, have, we have problems. A God, little g, becomes my savior, these functional messiahs who can't actually save us at all. Thirdly, um, when the vulnerable are mistreated. In particular, the, the more vulnerable they are, the more it ruffles God's feathers. Widows and orphans are two of the biggies that over and over and over again, God through his prophets, through the priests, through the law, continues to say, hey, don't redraw the boundary lines. Don't you move the property line for the widow. Don't you do that. She can't defend herself, but I will be her defender. You better watch out. Hey, those orphans who are out there who cannot take care of themselves, they are vulnerable. If you treat them poorly, if you enslave them, if you uh, make them objects of, of your uh, pleasure or your comfort, listen to me, you will get it. It will come for you. And over and over and over again. Mistreatment of the vulnerable. And the last one was hypocrisy. When we try to hide um, our hypocrisy and when, what we do is we excuse uh, what is wrong or we justify what is wrong or we ignore what is wrong. And you can just look at any interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is, this is why Jesus flipped over tables. This is why. Hypocrisy. So I'll put the closed parentheses to say... Um, if, if, if we get ruffled about something, these are the four things that we see God get ruffled about. And furthermore, we need to take his pace um, at doing so. This is what righteous anger looks like, excursus concluded. Now, I, I brought two more friends along um, to describe the next layer. So anger, if, if we don't 
deal with it, if we embrace it, um, some other things come along. Um, and this is an expression of that. Does anybody, have a, anybody want to venture a word um, that would describe the two faces that are on the screen? Anybody? Contempt. I, somebody said it over here. You said it too? You get credit. Boom. This is exactly what we're talking about here. Contempt. So the, um, our friend on the left here, uh, there's, there's some chin dipping and some sneering going on. Yes. Our friend on the right has more like a lip thing, like, no, something like that. This is contempt. And this is where Jesus goes next. When our anger is embraced instead of set to the side as God intends for us to do, um, when our anger is embraced, this is how he describes it. I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother, who's going to be liable to the judgment, same category as murder, but whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. If you have an older version, or maybe it's even in your footnotes of the Bible, um, it may say the word raka, R-A-C-A. It's an Aramaic term coming, but it's a, um, that language is guttural. So it comes from the back of the throat. So it's like, and this is disgusting, I know, but it's like when you haka loogie, if you could do <sighs> raka, that's what it's after. What he's saying in that is well, insult. This is spitting in somebody's face. This is what this is. This is contempt. And, and if anger is red hot, contempt is ice cold. In anger, I, I want to hurt you, but in contempt, I want to quite literally spit on you. I want to insult you in that way. The heart of contempt is exclusion. And in fact, in some circles, the way that you know that you're in is by excluding the right kind of people. And if anger strikes at the heart of someone's need for acceptance, contempt strikes at the heart of their need for belonging. Quite literally spitting on it. Raka. The consequence, Jesus says, is that the, the, the governing council, whatever it may be, in his day he had a particular thing in view, but the, the city council, the police, somebody needs to, that's what he says, the governing council should be concerned because of the disorder and the evil that you are bringing to society with your contempt. That's what he says. Um, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Somebody should keep an eye on you because of the disorder and the craziness and the evil that you will bring to the world. This is contempt. Contempt, um, the, the reason why the council should keep its eye on you is because um, c- contempt um, makes the anger that you and I feel initially easier to justify. It, in particular, it, uh, it gives us reason, rationale, and kind of greases the skids for us to have an ongoing expression of that as well. And not only does contempt um, justify our initial expression and ongoing expressions of anger, but further, um, it, it looks around for those around us for their failures. And it looks around um, for, for people's faults. So th- their foolishness, if you will, you're looking around and you're looking at someone to see where they're going to screw up. So there's a, a guy up in the Northwest runs a um, relational lab. It's the Gottman Institute, Dr. Gottman. And he created this kind of house setting and he would put couples um, in there, married couples in there, and he would just watch them. He'd watch them interact. He'd watch them talk. He'd watch them engage. He'd watch them do any number of other things. <clears throat> and so uh, after a few hours, he would be able to say to them, hey, this is what I saw. This is the problems that I see. Just be forewarned. They got so good. After watching couples and tracking them over a series of years, they got so good that they could predict 
to a 98% um, success rate whether or not a couple would be married five years down the road. Unbelievable. And he said the number one um, determinant of that was the level of contempt that the spouses had for one another. Contempt shows up in marriage relationships um, when uh, we um, express anger and then look to justify it. When we are looking for um, our spouse's uh, failures or their foolishness or their other problems, we go looking for that. At the heart of contempt is exclusion. And so with my spouse now, to to hold contempt for my spouse is to exclude um, my spouse from some particular portion of life. Is there any way in your mind that you can picture me excluding a spouse from a portion of my life and that going poorly? Of course there is. Along with the eye rolls, along with the, along with all of that stuff, just the sheer exclusion from portions of my life with somebody that I am claiming to love. I go looking for them and I look for ways to exclude them from my life. That's contempt. And you see that not only with parents, excuse me, with, with spouses, certainly you see it with parents, you see it with coworkers, any number of other important and intimate relationships Contempt is poison to that. It strikes at the heart of the other's need for belonging, and it spits. It spits on it. That's contempt. I I wish that were the end of it, but Jesus is smarter than we are, and look what he does next. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. There's no pictures here, but I I use the word malice. If anger is red hot and contempt is ice cold, malice has a kind of callousness to it, an indifference to it, a bitterness to it. It just, okay, we're done. It, it wishes, um, some of you may in your Bible, or again in the footnote, may have the word Gehenna. Gehenna was the place where just outside of Jerusalem, this valley, where uh, some of the kings from First and Second Kings that we talked about a while ago went and actually sacrificed their children to other gods. Another king came along and was like, dude, we ain't ever doing that again. Um, de- defiles the valley. It makes it the trash heap, and there's always something burning down there in the trash heap. They just toss stuff out, and it burns. Toss stuff out, and it burns. This is the place that became to symbolize hell in people's mind, the, the, the place of burning and of darkness and of trash. Malice... If anger is red hot and contempt is ice cold, malice is this kind of callous indifference that that hides under an expression of morality or an expression of religion um, and and classifies the other as you fool. Now, in our day and age, we can look at somebody and say, you're a fool. And that doesn't mean what it meant back then. Jesus has all of this material that he's drawing from in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. A fool is someone who was morally repugnant. So when I called somebody a fool, I wasn't just saying, you're a knucklehead. It was saying, you are out of bounds. You are off track. You are, you are an, uh, an idiot. You are completely opposed to God. And so then to um, express that here, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire is saying, hey, I am under the the." the umbrella of morality or under the umbrella of religion, I'm saying you're out. I wish God would damn you. And I may even tell God that, or I may tell that person that. I wish they would, he would just cast you 
onto that big stinky fire pit out there. That's how indifferent I am to you. And folks, listen, if, if anger struck at somebody else's sense of um, acceptance and if contempt struck at their sense of belonging, malice strikes at their value before God. And, and look at the consequence that he describes here. Whoever, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire, will be liable to Gehenna itself. In other words, you become the garbage that you despise. When I hold malice towards someone else, you become the garbage that you despise. Now, church family, look right up here for just a second. If you want an explanation for what happened this week, there it is. It's like Jesus knew what he was talking about. Anger, contempt, and malice. So, so what, what do we do then? It, if, it, if it has a primary order in human evil, what, what do we do? Now, some people in this moment, here's what you want. You want five steps to deal with your anger. Um, this is not what Jesus is doing here. Um, I, I will just simply point you to uh, the kind of middle chapters of the book of Proverbs, those teen chapters in particular. They have a lot to say about uh, anger and how it's diagnosed and some things you might do. Um, anytime anybody has any particular issue with anger, uh, it's a good place to go. Um, it's not what Jesus is going to do here. He is, he is aiming for something far deeper than that. He's not looking for an action step as much as he is trying to help you understand how to deal with it. And we said this before, I'll say it again. Um, to, uh, to deal with our anger, uh, what do we do? We pursue righteousness. So let's say it this way. Um, sow righteousness and reap love. That's what we do. We sow righteousness and we reap love. Now, where do you get that? Well, wh what about this whole thing to deal with anger, pursue righteousness? Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. And then he goes right to anger. Hosea, in the book of Hosea, chapter 10, verse 12, said it this way. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Not very creative, am I? I just, I mean, I stole it right from the prophet Hosea. Sow righteousness and reap love. How is this righteousness, how does it come to us? It's only available through us trusting. Trust Jesus. That's what we do. We, we pursue what God provides. And here's what happens. As we pursue righteousness, God bears the fruit of love in us. Love replaces what righteousness dislodges. The genuine goodness of God, the righteousness of God, that genuine goodness, when it permeates our lives, it pushes some stuff out. That's good news. But we don't just leave the place empty. It, God also then fills it with love. Jesus told a, a parable about this, about someone who... Um, uh, had a demon and that demon was removed from him. This force was removed from him, but that he didn't put his house in order. And because he didn't put his house in order, it came back. The, that, that darkness came back and it came back seven times worse than it was before. If you don't build something else in, something worse will come. That's what he says. So love, what we're trusting is as we pursue righteousness, we don't just set aside. This is what Colossians 3 said. Um, put aside anger. Wrath, malice, slandered, all that stuff. But then the very next little section is put on love. 
So we're not just setting aside one. We're also looking to bear this fruit of love. And here's what happens when the genuine goodness of God permeates my life. You remember the three sources of anger, the thwarted will, unmet expectations, and the wounded ego. What what happens when God's genuine goodness permeates my life, when his righteousness permeates my heart? Well, my will then begins to align with God's will. No longer is it going its own way. It begins to align with God's will. As his genuine goodness permeates my life, my will comes into line with his will. And then what happens? What is the result of that? What comes out of that? What, how is it expressed relationally? It's expressed in love. If I want what God wants, it if his genuine goodness is morphing, changing, transforming my will, then in my relationship with Chris, what will happen? That will express itself in love because I will want what God wants for him. So righteousness, reap love. As my will is conformed, it expresses itself in love. What, what about the expectations? Well, as my will is transformed by that genuine goodness, so also my expectations. As my will, I begin to not only um, will what God wills, but then I begin to expect some things that God expects. I begin to want the things that God wants. And again, how does that express itself? It expresses itself in love. One of the great gifts that we can give other people is not asking them to be what we need them to be, but just asking them to be who they are so we can love them in that way. So much of our anger in expe- is, is um, relationally there at present because of the expectations that we hold. I need you to be this, and they can't be that. And so we let that go. And the genuine goodness of God then frees us to love them as they are. This is how God did for us. He didn't ask us to change. He loved us. And then went to work to change us. What about our ego? The wounded ego? Yes. Will it still hurt? Yes, it will. But my ego then, because the genuine goodness of God permeates my life, my ego, if you will, hears the truer testimony than what has been said. It it says, hey, this is my identity. I know I may feel this way. I know may, I may have heard this before. I know may, uh, somebody else may have come on and, you know, kind of flown this flag over my life. But the truest testimony is what God has said. Love replaces what righteousness dislodges. And it doesn't mean that I don't make appropriate adjustments. Yes, you may do that. It doesn't mean that I don't confront evil. You may very well do so. But you do so in love and without malice. Now, Um, here's one very practical thing. I said this righteousness, this true genuine goodness is only available through trust in Jesus. What does it sound like though? How would this come out? And I would say these two expressions, you tell God the truth and you tell yourself the truth. I was reading this week, unrelated to um, today's sermon. I was reading this week and this statement was in this book that I was reading. And I I adapted it for this sermon, but this is what the author said. Jesus, I feel angry because. Tell God the truth and tell yourself the truth. I feel angry because I did not get that promotion. Because of um, that person said this to me. Because I really, really wanted this thing to work and it did not work. Because I'm sitting around and I'm waiting again 
I'm really angry about that. And if you need permission to tell God that, please consider this permission. Because you don't go to God with this kind of thing rolling around in your heart and catch God off guard or by surprise. He is not shocked when you come and say to him, gosh, I I didn't know you felt that way. Tell God the truth and then tell yourself the truth. It's one thing to say, Jesus, I feel angry because it's a whole nother thing to finish the sentence. Jesus, I feel angry because I got passed over for that job. And I know that where I am is where you want me in this moment and nothing happens that is not filtered by your father's hand to me. Nothing. Jesus, I know, excuse me, I I am angry because that person let me down. And I know that you know what it feels like to be let down. And further, I know that I've let you down before. And so I I can free myself from the obligation to be mad at them because they're just doing what all of humanity does. Or on and on and on. I mean, we, we could just keep going. You tell God the truth and you tell yourself the truth. Jesus, I'm angry because of this. And I know that blank, whatever blank is. Okay, so again, he's not giving you five steps there. I, ho- I hope that particular thing is helpful, but he's not giving you five steps. What he's trying to do is paint a picture When the genuine goodness of God comes into your life and goes to work to radically transform you, and it it bears love through you, what then does that love look like? Well, here we go. Verse 23. He gives two pictures. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember uh, that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Now, this could be pretty easy for you and I to do. Um, we're here, we're in worship. We're like, oh, before we pray, man, I, I forgot. I, I was really sharp with that person. And so I'm going to just reach in my f- uh, pocket, grab my phone, fire off a text. Hey, listen, I'm really sorry. I was so sharp with you. Please forgive me. And you can continue on in worship. This was not the case for them. This is how serious it was. You know, he's teaching in Galilee, which is a good three or four days journey, depending on fa- how fast you walk, three or four days journey away from Jerusalem. So we're talking about making the journey with your sheep, are you ready to make the sacrifice? You, it's your turn in line. You walk up, you're like, oh man, golly, so-and-so is mad at me because of this. Could somebody watch my sheep? Then you go backwards, up, back up to Galilee, three or four days worth of walking. You find them. Hey man, I'm really sorry for what I said or what I did or whatever. Will you please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Then what do you do? You make the same journey again. Back down, get back in line to offer your gift at the altar, standing there, okay, now I'm ready. That's a completely different ballgame. In our particular context, if you've been around here, maybe uh, you've heard me um, do do this little illustration before, but um, we have a couple of newlyweds in here, uh, folks who are going to get married too. But let's just pretend one of them here, uh, we're here at the wedding, okay? Uh, Big... Organ honks off. Here comes the bride. Doors fling open. Radiant bride in white. Really nervous guy in a tuxedo. And um, I'm here at the front and we go through, dearly beloved, we're gathered here and all of that kind of good stuff. We come to the vows and I look at the groom and I'm like, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. And you start and you do the vow. Good job. Way Way to not fall apart. You look at the bride and said, are you ready? And what if the bride said, no, hold on just a minute. 
every person in here would whip their phone out and be like, this is about to go viral, people. They would be shocked. They would just, what? So the bride makes her way back down the steps right to mom there in the front row and says, mom, before I could enter into this holy of a moment and make these vows before God and my husband and this congregation, I, I just wanted to say I'm so sorry for what I said last night. Will you please forgive me? And the mom's like, of course. And they have a moment there on the front row. Brad walks back up, grabs the groom's hands. Okay, I'm ready now. If that happened at this wedding, what would you go home and say? I have never seen anything like that before. And that is exactly the point. The genuine goodness of God so permeates our life that the fruit of love that comes out of us is unseen in the world. I mean, it, it, is, it is never, I've never seen anything like that before. That's exactly the kind of transformation that Jesus wants to bring to your life. The kind that grabs people's attention and goes, what kind of life is that person living? He continues on. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, this is how serious he is. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Can you imagine a legal setting in which you are engaged in a legal confrontation, but you genuinely want God's best for your adversary? The lawyer representing you would say, I've never had a lawsuit like this before. And that's the idea. It doesn't say you can't go to court. Sometimes it may be what is best. But it says you can do so without anger or without contempt or without um, the, the callousness of malice. You can go with love such that you want what God wants for that situation and that person. Sow righteousness and reap love. It's not law, folks. It is a vision, a picture of what God wants to do. And I, I think typically there's two responses to this, and I'll leave us with this. Two responses. One is to say, yeah, but I don't know who I would be without it. I don't have a sense that I can live my life without this piece of it. And I just want, if, if that's your question, I just, I want to say to you, Jesus not only can help you live without it, he can replace it with something far better. He can bear love through you. Some people say, oh, well, it's not that I can't picture without it. I mean, I probably can, but like, I don't, I mean, Jesus may be able to help that guy over there, or those people over there, or the person sitting next to me, or whatever. I don't think Jesus can help me. And here's what I would say to you, this. Jesus died on a cross to deal with our sin. Thankfully, yes and amen. Oh, thank you. That when I mess up, Jesus has forgiveness for me. 
Thankfully, that is the case. And so people say, oh, well, I believe Jesus can forgive me. I just don't think he can change me. But dying on a cross is only half of the story. He not only died on the cross, what happened three days later? He rose from the tomb. If he can beat death, he can help you with your anger. And so, yes, he can help you with your stuff. And I don't know which of those two may land on you hardest. But I think that's exactly the conversation that you need to start with the Lord. And so I want to give us a moment here just to be quiet before him. And we've got a song that we'll sing about the incredible love of God. I want you to ask the question, which of those two? Do, do, can I see myself without anger? Do I believe that God can help me? Set those two questions before the Lord and see what he says. Would you bow your heads? And... Say those things to God and see what he says back in this moment.